Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, I want to invite you to turn then to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and you'll find that on page 573 of the Church Bibles. And just like Sinclair has been leading us to other parts of the Bible, we're going to come to Luke's Gospel chapter 2 as well. Uh, Luke's Gospel chapter 2, we'll, we'll read from that in just a moment. As you're finding that, just let me say, it was remiss of me, not, of course, not to invite you to tomorrow morning, Christmas morning. I should have done that at the start. It is the only other service that we have this week, half past ten here tomorrow morning uh, for gathered worship again. It would be a joy to see you, young and old, children, bring your gifts uh, with you in the morning. You can do that, and uh, Will will be speaking to you and speaking to all of us tomorrow. Well, let's hear God's Word again, the fifth time of reading this beautiful passage this beautiful poem that the prophet Isaiah has given us. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Why? For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, please keep your finger in Isaiah chapter 9. Turn forward to Luke's gospel chapter 2. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 857, 857, and Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and we'll read the first 14 verses. I hope the reason for this will become clear as we look at these two passages together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Amen. Well, friends, what I want to say to you this morning is this. The point of Christmas is peace. The point of Christmas is peace. It's the point of everything that we're doing together this morning. You and I sitting here with praise and adoration in our hearts and on our lips, with our whole lives being offered up to God. Praise is the point of Christmas because peace is the point of Christmas. Look at the praise in Isaiah chapter 9. It's all there in the opening verses. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Probably hard for us to remember and imagine agrarian joy when everything has gone well, the sun has shone, the crops are bountiful. There is food for another, another year. Oh the, oh, the joy, oh, the happiness. I wonder if you noticed in Isaiah 9, it's the fifth time we've read this passage over the last Sunday mornings, and I only noticed this for the first time yesterday. Did you notice there are three reasons given for the joy? Three times we're given the little word for. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. That is a reason for singing. Verse 5, the second reason for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Friends, do you see the reason for rejoicing? It is because of peace, because the oppressor's rod is broken, because the warrior's implements are gone. They are no longer needed. It is peace times. And look how it all comes to a climax this morning. The third four in verse six, for to us a child is born. Isn't it true that peace is at the very heart of this? It is the climax title. Sinclair has been giving us three other titles for the Lord Jesus. This morning we come to Prince of Peace. And as you read from the end of verse 6 into verse 7, isn't it clear that peace is really the crown of all of this? The Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. 
What an amazing title for the Lord Jesus Christ, Prince of Peace. See how it's worked out in verse 7? The the title is a marker of royalty, isn't it? He will be a king like no other king. Such a beautiful title. Have you ever thought about it? We we often talk, don't we, about somebody being a man of war. A, A president has doves on one side and hawks on the other side. He has men of war and men of peace. But Jesus is all of that and more, isn't He? He is a prince of peace. He, he sits on a throne. And so really, really this morning, I want to move between Isaiah chapter 9 and Luke chapter 2, like, like Sinclair took us so beautifully to see the way that these titles work out in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to do that in Luke's gospel chapter 2 with you this morning. I want to show you two things about the Prince of Peace. And here's the first one. The Prince of Peace is a surprising royal Savior. The Prince of Peace is a surprising royal Savior. Friends, this morning, it is a very great surprise that God's answer to the world's greatest problems doesn't look like a very good answer. God sends His greatest gifts wrapped in weakness. When we want a warrior, He sends a baby. And when God sends a baby, He sends that baby wrapped in obscurity wrapped in obscurity. I want want you just to have Luke's gospel chapter 2 open. Just look at the opening verses again. What what kind of text is this? Isaiah 9 is a poem talking about war coming to an end. What what type of text is Luke chapter 2? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Friends, let me, let me suggest to you, this type of text is like the kind of small text that came with your census if you filled it in like we were meant to not that long ago. This is data language, historical location language. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. When you read all the way through to verse 7, and stand back and look at it, what you realize is that Luke is beginning giving us more time describing the facts of the Roman census than he has described the birth of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that that true? Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. All, All the waiting, all the information, all the interest is in the first six verses. Isn't that surprising? What Luke is saying to us is, in the days when Augustus was Caesar, And in the days when Quirinius was in charge of Syria, in those days a national census took place. In the days when Joseph had to return to his hometown because of the census, in those days Mary gave birth to her son. And I guess we hear those words read so often at carol services, don't we? Verses 1 to 5. 
that what we tend to miss is that Luke is showing us these are facts about oppressive Roman rule. Oppressive Roman rule in the promised land. Here is God's people, and the life is being squeezed out of them by a foreign power. They have the foot of a harsh master on their necks. God's people should not have to be doing any of these things. Friends, this is Isaiah chapter 9 being played out. This is the yoke of his burden, isn't it? This is the staff for his shoulder. This is the rod of the people's oppressor. This is how you manage people. This is how you subdue people. It's how you humiliate them and control them. Friends, these are facts which are setting the stage for showing us just why God's royal Savior is so surprising. How is God going to use a baby to break these things? You see, the census was an unwelcome alien intrusion into the affairs of the Jewish people. The census was a reminder to the Jewish people of the allegiance that they owed to Rome as a conquered people. The census really, let's be honest, was probably a way of regularizing taxes. It's a way of extracting more money from the people. And friends, this morning, here's the thing, that opening line in chapter 2, verse 1, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was no ordinary man. Caesar Augustus was regarded by Romans as more of a god than a human. Caesar was the grandnephew and later the adopted son of Julius Caesar, the sole leader of the Roman Empire. What Luke is doing for us beautifully, cleverly, is, is just unfolding from verse 1 onwards the reach of this man's power. Verse 1, he issues a, he issues a decree. Do you see the phrase, the census should be taken of all the world? All the world. His name, Augustus, carries the meanings which we associate today with describing somebody as August. Listen to one, one inscription about him which has come down to us. Listen, listen to this. Divine Augustus Caesar. Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a God, commander of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. The, the new year began on Augustus' birthday. And here is what was said about him. When Caesar Augustus appeared, he exceeded the hopes of all who had anticipated good tidings. The birthday of Augustus marked for the world the beginning of good tidings through his coming. Isn't that amazing? The birthday of Augustus marked for the world the beginning of good tidings through his arrival. Luke says to us, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Do you see what Luke is doing? Do you see what he's doing with the historical facts of his day? Luke is showing us the arrival of two royal saviors, not one. That there is the royal savior of Rome, there is Augustus, raising his hand, and as he raises his hand, he sends ripples through the entire Roman world. He is a mighty man commanding mighty armies from a mighty nation. And onto that stage of world history, friends, the angels 
come at night and say, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Here is another royal Savior. Alongside Augustus, Rome's royal Savior, here is the true royal Savior, a surprising royal Savior. Because where does God's Savior arrive? Where does He come to? Does He come to Rome? No, Isaiah 9, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The true royal Savior is not born in marbled halls. He's born in a cattle shed. I wonder, friends, do you notice the point of a census? The point of a census is for an emperor to know all about who is who and who is born where and what their name is and what they are doing. The information about the masses gets directed, doesn't it, to the corridors of power. And yet, when God's Savior is born, who is informed of His birth? Who does God tell about His Savior's birth? The shepherds. The emperor is not notified. Quirinius, the governor of Syria, gets no telegram. Peasant shepherds out on a hillside in a dark night is who God speaks to. God's glory is shining out in the world on a farm, not in a palace. Oh, friends, I wonder if we can see what Luke is saying to us this morning with all these royal historical facts. Listen, friends, he says to us, I want you to remember the words of Mary's song. As you look at mighty Augustus Caesar sitting there in his palace, there in his imperial chamber in Rome, pushing nations around like little pieces on a chessboard. You see, you see military commanders do that, don't you? Standing on a map and moving a ship here and moving people here. That's what Augustus is doing. Oh, I want you to think of him, says Luke, when you sing Mary's song. Do you remember what Mary sings in the opening chapters? My soul glorifies the Lord. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has, listen, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. Oh, I don't know about you, but this makes me want to sing this Christmas. It's why I love Christmas, why I love the carols and the words that we get to sing at this time of year. For we have a God, we have a King who takes joy and pleasure in marginalizing the powerful. And, and, and it's as if Luke is saying to us, God is watching from heaven, Caesar Augustus, moving all these pieces around his chest chessboard and saying, yes, but while you're looking here, I'm doing the real work here on a farm and a hillside at night. He sends the rich away empty, and He cares for the poor and the outcast and the broken and the needy. Today, a Savior has been born, and this will be the sign. You will find Him wrapped in sink in a golden crib and surrounded by servants. No, the sign is that he is lying in a manger. Oh, what a sign given to the shepherds. You will find the true Savior lying in a feeding trough. 
There's even more to it than this, friends. I want us just to linger in this a little bit longer. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why did the Prince of Peace come to Bethlehem? He came to Bethlehem because Joseph, his earthly father, had to serve the almighty decree of Caesar Augustus. That's why he was born there. Caesar mandated that Joseph would go to his hometown in Bethlehem. But who was Augustus himself serving when he issued that decree? Do you remember? Hundreds and hundreds of years before Rome ever came to be a player on the world stage, before the line of Caesar's, exi- the, the line of Caesar's house ever came into existence, what, what had the prophet Micah said? From you, Bethlehem, from you who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule over Israel. And because God said that hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a man called Augustus sticks out his chest one day, raises his hand, and issues a decree which he thinks shows he has control over the world. And in fact, in issuing his decree, he shows that God is in control of everything. Joseph makes it to Bethlehem. Why does Joseph make it to Bethlehem? Yes, because of Caesar, but Joseph makes it because God has said he would be there. The universal rule of the Caesar is subordinate to the universal rule of God in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Luke is saying to us, Rome is unwittingly serving a still greater sovereign. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Glory to God in the highest. Friends, the Prince of Peace is a surprising royal Savior, coming at a time and a place that no one expects Him to come, coming in a way that nobody expects Him to arrive. I wonder where you are this morning as you look at the world. Seems to, somehow Christmas always seems to magnify the world's pain, doesn't it? There's always one or two stories that stand out, and it's not just that we, not just that we grapple with it emotionally, but we think, really, at, at Christmas time, is this the way the world is? I hope you can see in your heart and feel it in your bones that in all the tumult of the world and all the power of the world and all the privilege of the world and all the crushing of the weak, do you? Do you think it overpowers God in any way? No. Do you think it pushes God out to the margins? No, the way God works out His peace and brings His peace is not the way that you and I would bring it. He lets the mighty have their moment, and in the darkness, through what they are doing, He works His wonders out. I want to show you a second thing, and this is in the angel's words to the shepherds. Number two, not just that the Prince of Peace is a surprising royal Savior. Number two, the Prince of Peace brings a surprising royal pardon. The Prince of Peace brings a surprising royal pardon. Look at what they say to the, what they say to the shepherds. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you know, if I, if I had to pick any verse in the whole of the Christmas story 
more associated with Christmas that is more misunderstood, it would be hard to better this verse, wouldn't it? And on earth, peace to men, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Everybody has sung about this verse, from John Lennon to you too. Everybody sings about it. Some of you know you too's haunting song, Peace on Earth. John Lennon, Happy Christmas, War is Over. Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men. It's on about, it's on about half of the Christmas cards that we've received already so far. And yet, what does verse 14 actually mean? Aren't these incredibly surprising words? I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Friends, we need to be clear on this, don't we? That the angels cannot mean what so many take them to mean, that Christmas is a time for hoping for the best, and that somehow, some way, in some part of the world, someday, somehow, everything will be overcome by a bit of good and Christmas cheer. Do you remember 1914, the week leading up to Christmas? English and German troops on the Western Front, they famously exchanged gifts, didn't they? They left the trenches and played football together. And then days later, the bloodbath resumed again. Is that what we mean when we say peace on earth? It's not what Jesus Himself understood of His mission, is it? Do you remember His words later in Luke? When you hear about wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Really? What about these words from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Himself? Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. Our friends, verse 14, it's surely a surprising song to sing, isn't it? There's even more to it. I, I think we're so used to little girls standing on a stage with tinsel wire halos around their heads, acting out angels. We, 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 that, that, that's the main thing that we think of when we think of angels, isn't it, at, at Christmas? 
We've lost the awesome display of divine majesty which this event meant. Look how the shepherds respond in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. No parents at a school nativity play are filled with great fear. There's no trembling in our boots. The shepherds respond with sheer terror. Friends, that is one angel, verse 9, one angel. But then verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. A multitude, a heavenly host is an army, an army of angels. God's entourage, His warrior messengers. So closely do these angels represent God that when this one angel shines, it is not the angel's own glory shining, but the glory of God's own presence, the Lord's presence. Friends, here, here is the surprise. Here is the surprise. This is an army announcing peace. This is an army announcing peace. It's messengers at arms announcing a peace treaty. So, so what do they mean? Why do they sing these words? Why are you and I meant to sing these words? We're going to sing them together in just a moment, a version of them, a a lovely carol. Why do we sing them without our fingers crossed as we look at the news, as we look at our world? How can we sing together in just a moment without our tongue firmly in our cheek? I want you just to look back at Zechariah's song, chapter 1 of Luke. Look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 76. This is Zechariah singing, prophesying about his son, John, John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Friends, where does the light come from in verse 79? Where does the peace come from? Where does the tender mercy of God show itself? You see it in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. The forgiveness of their sins. Here is why we sing at Christmas time. We know, don't we, as people who have come to Christ, we know that we cannot ever deal with the evil out there in the world, the evil out there on our streets, in our nation, in in parts of the world that we cannot even begin to imagine how dark it is. We can never, ever face up to that unless we face up to what is in here, the evil of our hearts. We, we might never do those terrible things on the news, would we? The things that we see and read and hear about. But would you ever really want everyone in this room to know what you've thought about this week? What you've said to somebody closest to you? Imagine it flashed up on the wall above my head. Happy Christmas. No, the, the problem with the world starts right here at this lectern, doesn't it? It starts right here at this lectern. The problem with Aberdeen starts right here in this room, right here on this street. 
You, John, says Zechariah. You, John, says the beaming father. You are going to be the one that goes and says to the guilty that they can be forgiven, that there is a new king who forgives sins. Jesus is coming. You, John, you are the one who will tell rebels to lay down their arms and to bow the knee to King Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And so, as the angels sing, as the time finally comes, verse 14, when Jesus is born and the glory of the Lord lights up the night sky, the angels are announcing that God Himself is offering a royal pardon. Have you ever thought of it like that, friends? Christmas night, God is extending to the world a royal pardon. This is a surprising royal pardon because it's not the kind of peace most people are looking for. It's probably not the kind of peace you're looking for. It's not the peace between nations on earth. It's not peace between families and factions. It's not peace of mind, the kind of inner calm that comes from thinking the right thoughts or breathing the right way. No, this is, this is relational peace, relational peace between me and God, me a sinner, Him the righteous judge, me a wayward child, and Him the loving Father. That's what this peace is. Me a repentant child, and Him the embracing Father. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Friends, I want to wish you a very, very merry, happy Christmas. I want to wish it to you because it it comes from here. Here is the one, the Prince of Peace, who does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He offers us pardon. He offers us immunity, an end to being at war with Him, an end to being at war with one another if we are no longer at war with Him. Glory, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Amen.